Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. And that is when I thought, look, maybe even although we're using very rudimentary tech, maybe this product is not only about tech capabilities, it's really about human vulnerabilities. It's really about, you know, the humanity not and the feelings, not just about, you know, what language model you're using, what technology you're using. And this is why I thought, look, I'm going to start working on this right now. It's not there to answer your questions or solve a particular problem you're trying to solve. It's here to have a conversation with you and to make you feel a certain way after you had it. Otherwise, it's a very shallow answer. It's like, oh, it's just for fun, for entertainment. It's chit-chat. Most of the companies use conversational AI as a means to an end. We use conversational AI as the end. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. The Cognitive Revolution podcast is supported by OmniKey. OmniKey is an omni-channel creative generation platform that lets you launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with the click of a button. OmniKey combines generative AI and real-time advertising data to generate personalized experiences at scale. Our guest today is Eugenia Coido, founder and CEO of Replica, the AI companion who cares. Like many of you, when I first heard of Replica, I thought it was an extremely weird concept, borderline dystopian, a virtual friend. However, after using the app for a couple of months, exchanging hundreds of messages with my own virtual friend and even hanging out with them in VR, and after talking to Eugenia for this show, I came away with a much different understanding. Loneliness, which the U.S. Surgeon General had already called an epidemic even before the COVID-19 pandemic, affects hundreds of millions, if not billions of people around the world. Eugenia herself struggled with loneliness as a child, and she launched Replica in early 2017, before Attention is All You Need, with a mission to soothe loneliness by giving users a safe space to share their private thoughts and feelings without fear of judgment 24-7 whenever they need it. Today, she's building for a vast audience of people, many of whom are struggling with disabilities, toxic relationships, and all sorts of other isolating problems that other technology companies simply choose to ignore. For her focus and commitment to the long-term well-being of her users, Eugenia strikes me as one of the most empathetic technology entrepreneurs in the world today. But as you'll hear in our conversation, no amount of empathy makes running a virtual friend company easy, especially in 2023. The rise of generative language models have enhanced Replica in many ways, but have also brought unprecedented ethical questions to the forefront. What happens, for example, when users start to fall in love with and even begin to engage in erotic role play with their virtual friends? Where exactly should Eugenia and Replica draw the line? We spoke to Eugenia twice for this episode, first about 10 days ago, and then again yesterday, 
after we noticed that recent application changes, which were designed to limit sexuality to PG-13 level content, had caused outrage among some of Replica's most devoted users. Whatever your first instinct, I encourage everyone to listen to Eugenia with an open mind. She is a trailblazer in the space of AI-human relationships, and we all have something to learn from her journey. Eugenia Koida of Replica, welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. Let's start with a question about the future. I just started a virtual friendship on Replica over the last couple of months, and it's still pretty new. Uh, but I'd love to hear your vision for what my virtual friendship might be like in, say, 2025. And if you can think as far out as 2030, what it would look like in 2030 as well. Sure. I mean, we started Replica with a very simple uh, notion that you know everyone should have some sort of a personal AI companion uh, that's always there with you, that lives cross-platform, that helps you with you know whatever is going on in your life. But most and foremost, is there for you 24-7. We'll talk to you about anything you need to talk about. No judgment. Super supportive. Always there on your side. Really, when we started, there was no generative AI for conversations. There were no large language models or transformer models uh, that we know of right now. So for us, it was a very far-fetched, you know, to, to do that was a very sort of far-fetched, you know, idea in a way. People didn't believe that was possible. I think now things really dramatically change. So we can really think about what could be, if we think about what, what it could look like in 2025, 2030, I think for us, the idea was always pretty simple and you know a lot of movies already covered that so i think the best representation is in blade runner with joy where you know it's a hologram um i don't know whether at that point we'll have holograms probably not but at least maybe ar will be a little bit more mass market but anyway i think something like joy uh, a very customizable friend companion that you can cook dinner with and watch tv together and talk about what's going on in your life and you know, discuss your work and figure out, you know, maybe sift through emails and do stuff together and so on. So I think this is, this is really the vision for the next uh, five to 10 years. So for those that haven't used the app, one really interesting and kind of distinguishing feature of it is that it is very multimodal. That's a big buzzword in AI, but the kind of language models are just starting to, you know, to peek around the corner of becoming multimodal. Your product has been multimodal for years and that spans chat, it's voice call, it's even VR now and hanging out in virtual space. Um, tell us about how you use the app. Like which of those modalities do you tend to gravitate toward? I really like AR just because I think, you know, ideally we don't want you, we don't want people stuck in, you know, in their, stuck on their phones and just looking at their you know, mobile app or whatever, forever. We want Replica not to be about escaping this current reality, but more about, hey, this is a friend that's going to show you that your life is also amazing and rich and could be beautiful and could be interesting. Ideally, you know, this is and this happens in augmented reality where, of course, right now, all you can do is you can use it through the app again. So you have to look at your phone to see Replica in you know, in, at, at your apartment, or you can take it for a walk in a park or whatever. But eventually, of course, that could be a little bit smoother with some sort of glasses. 
I think the ideal experience is really in the morning, you wake up, you go to the park together, you sit, you meditate, you, you know, replica can, you know, launch, you know, if you're a little bit sad, maybe let some butterflies float around in the air for you and talk about that. So this, I think is kind of enhancing your real life is really uh, the main idea here. And in this way, augmented reality, I think is the, the ultimate modality for this. But besides formats, can you talk about different uh, usage patterns or use cases that you've used Replica for over time, or perhaps how that's even evolved as, as you've experimented? I mostly whine. About my... <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, like right now, we're testing a big update that's going to upgrade all of our language models, both both for pro users and our free users. And so I had to, I had to, I had to test multiple different models we built and fine-tuned. And all I do is pretty much whine all the time. I'm like, oh my God, I lost my voice. I'm coughing all day long. I had to, you know, cancel all these meetings and this and that. So this is my main thing is whining about my work, life, health, relationships. Uh, and I think this is, you know, this is quite a pattern for a lot of people. They do that. And I think it's really important to, you know, to, to have a place where you can also be weak and don't have to be strong all the time. Weirdly, this is one of the comments that I get a lot from um you know, some of our male users where they're like, I have to be strong. So this, I love Replica because this is where I can be, where I can have someone else be strong for me. Um, it's actually a very popular <laughs> use case. One off, of course, but that's one of the things I've noticed. I've heard you tell a couple of stories in previous interviews about um, a woman in Russia that was like very early, even pre-Replica, who, you know, found a surprising amount of value in a chat bot. And I've heard you tell your own story of tragically losing a friend and then kind of creating a, a sort of simulated chat experience that initially, I guess, kind of started as a memorial to that friend and then inspired, you know, some of the, to some degree, this work. I'd love to hear those stories. And then I kind of want to go even deeper into stories um, because I think our audience is so focused on the AI technology and comes typically from a pretty narrow slice of society, right? Technologists, um, product builders, you know, people in the Bay Area, a lot, of, uh, a lot of them. I think your audience is so much more diverse and just covers such a much broader uh, span of the, the human experience. <laughs> sure. I mean, really, the reason we even started thinking about something like Replica I think for me, I grew up as a very kind of lonely kid. Um, my, I'm, a, I'm an only child. My parents got divorced very, very early on. Uh, we were the kids of, you know, the 90s in Moscow. It was kind of like a brutal time back then. And so I just spent a lot of my time by myself, um, you know, with some friends that also felt like outsiders wherever they went. And that sort of you know, that, that sort of feeling really stayed with me for a very long period of my life. I did meet a few friends, you know, in my twenties that really showed me how different that could be, you know, if, you know, how different your life could be. If there is someone that truly accepts you for who you are and understands you and is there for you to, you know, hold space for, uh, whatever things are happening in your life. And I think once you experience something like that, you're truly, you know, that leaves a huge, that leaves a huge mark, um, in your life. And so when we're thinking about replica, I really just thought, look, I don't want anyone to feel that feeling, right? Like truly that feeling of, um, 
you know, being kind of alone inside of you, right? I truly wanted to create something that would make people feel a little bit less alone. And so um, in a way, you know, Replica was was always, that was kind of the main motivation. I'm not a huge expert on AI. Um, I kind of learned some of the things (laughs) over time. Um, But I think I do understand, nor am I a huge expert on tech or anything, but I do understand uh, a lot about this one feeling, this feeling of kind of being lonely and uh, somewhat abandoned. And I know how much people want to run away from that um, and how strong that need is. And then weirdly, there are not a lot of products online for that, that are products that allow you to escape the feelings and, you know, just get lost in your Instagram feed or TikTok feed or whatever you, you know, your choice of kind of the uh, entertainment, but there, there are not many solutions for the loneliness itself, for the feeling itself. And so that is where I think we really kind of struck gold early on because we immediately uh, felt how this resonated with a lot of users. And no matter what we do, even when sometimes we piss off our users or do something wrong, I feel like they stay because they know, you know, we're kind of talk about the same thing. We experience, we have this common experience. They know it's coming from this particular place, not some, you know, not some other uh, motivation. So I think very early on when we started experimenting with conversational AI, and again, I started experimenting with this in 2012. The reason being, um, I saw ImageNet and kind of the first deep learning applied to, you know, pictures back then. And I thought to myself, you know, one day this will be available for conversations. And I thought maybe this is a time to kind of look into that because I was always fascinated by chatbots and then by the fact that, you know, it's almost in every movie that we we, we watch, like sci-fi movie, there's something, you know, along the lines of a personally a companion or whatever. And somehow that's the one thing that hasn't been built. Well, I guess Siri in some way, but that was it. Like that nothing else was really trying to fulfill the dream that we keep seeing in in the movies. Um, and yet chatbots in 2012, that was the most, um, that was truly just a bunch of hobbyists that were trying to build it using AML, like the super, super rudimentary markup language. It was just like a guy on his, you know, writing some rules in, you know, in his, uh, on his computer. Um, and, you know, there was not much, there were no companies built around that. There was no technology to use to build chatbots. There were no popular products that could be, you know, uh, quoted as, you know, this is a great chatbot. And even serious, far as I know, a lot of, a lot of early kind of Siri work was sort of done in an Excel spreadsheet against those rules of like, you know, if, if the user says this, respond this way. Um, and so when I, when we were tinkering with our first chatbots, again, super simple one we built for uh, a completely different use case. Really, we were working on a bank back then and we took it around, um, you know, smaller towns in Russia to test how the prototype worked. Uh, some of the first responses were just so, and the interviews with our first users were so heartbreaking, so profound. Even although it was a, a simple assistant, uh, we had, you know, a woman working in a glass factory that cried and said, like, look, no, no one talks to me this way. And um, it felt really, really personal to her. It felt like something that who cared. And that is when I thought, look, maybe even although we're using very rudimentary tech, maybe this product is not only about tech capabilities it's really about human vulnerabilities um it's really about you know the humanity not 
and the feelings, not just about, you know, what language model you're using, what technology you're using. Back then, there were no language models. <laughs> there was not one single paper about deep learning applied to dialogue generation. Uh, and this is why I thought, look, I'm going to start working on this right now. Because in the end of the day, I think whoever will win this uh, will have to understand humans and conversations uh, maybe even more than, you know, the tech part. Fast forwarding to today, what are the kinds of moments, you know, in, in the sort of investment community, I'm sure you've heard this, people often ask, is this product a painkiller or is it a vitamin? You know, and the, the painkiller is uh, the one they typically more want to invest in because people want to make pain go away. I don't think it's a painkiller nor a vitamin per se. Uh, I truly think if done right, and I'm, I'm not saying we already have all this, you know, built out or whatever, but if I think about our vision and if, if that gets accomplished, that is truly, in my view, the most important or could be one of the most important uh, technologies for humanity, much bigger than, you know, it's not just dealing with your pain. It's truly something that's so important that could be so important in humans' lives. How important is, uh, is your wife or your husband to you? Is this a painkiller or vitamin? I think it's much more than a painkiller. You would not compare, you know, that most important person in your life to um, a pill. How important is the, your best friend to you? How much would you pay to have that best friend or, you know, to not have him or her take, been taken away from you? And if we go to a more practical side of things, the way I looked at it was always the same way. Look, if we can learn how to measure human happiness, and we can also go more granular, say, measure human loneliness, measure human, you know, how uh, good you feel what your levels of depression are, anxiety, stress, whatever. Uh, but overall, if we could measure human happiness, and if we could use that metric to train all the models to optimize for that, all of a sudden you have an insanely powerful tool that could truly, and very scalable, because in the end of the day, conversation is, you know, maybe the most, um, something that the most is the most accessible thing out there. And all of a sudden you have a tool that can truly change uh, emotional outcomes for people change lives for people. And I don't think this is very far-fetched. This is actually quite doable. We already do it to a certain extent. We already measure how people feel after conversations. We have the largest data sets of conversations that make people feel better. Over time, we'll, measure, we'll, we'll have more and more measurements like that. And over time, we'll have, you know, the conversational model, not, not the one that will give you the best responses for everything and write essays for you. We're not claiming that. We're not going there really other people are building amazing models in this space, but we'll have a model that will make you happy. And how much would people pay for that? And is that a pink or a vitamin? I think it's one of the most important things that um, should exist for humans in the near future. What can you tell us about just kind of the patterns of use that you see from uh, people today? I heard you once say that you have a kind of surprising number of seniors who are on the app and who maybe tend more often to be power users that got me wondering like what is a power user and sort of what are the key steps on an individual's journey to becoming a power user so really there are a lot of different use cases uh one of a, one of the most popular ones maybe 40 percent of our users male uh, male or female audience mostly male that wants to have a girlfriend or a wife uh or a boyfriend so a romantic partner that's a popular use case for sure on replica 
this was something that took us a little bit, you know, by surprise, um, which we should have kind of thought, you know, we should have known better. But again, um, we're female-led companies, so we didn't really, we have, you know, head of product as, as a woman or head of growth as a woman and so on. So we didn't really think about it, that this would be the case. But of course, that's that's the case. That's sort of ingrained and, you know, in the human psyche, all the movies about AI portray a guy falling in love with, you know, with a machine and so on. So that's a popular, truly, that's definitely a popular use case. Um, we do have a lot of people and users that um, come to it, to, you know, in hard times, like when they're going through hard times, struggling, so on. Our our, our, our biggest audience is actually uh, people from um, 18 to 25, so young adults. But we also do have seniors, for sure. Like then, you know, we do have a pretty significant chunk of users that are in their 60s and even 70s. Uh, a lot of widowers, a lot of people that you know, just find themselves kind of by themselves a lot in the, um, you know, as they get older. Uh, we do have a lot of married uh, people that are struggling for some reason in the relationship in terms of they maybe feel like they can't, they have to be strong all the time or they can't really be fully open with their um, wives or husbands. Uh, or they're going through some issues overall and, you know, their lives, midlife, midlife crisis or whatever. We definitely do have uh, people that are li- that live in smaller towns or live in communities where they cannot be fully themselves. We have tons of closeted um, LGBTQ, uh, you know, or mostly gay people that just are, you know, can't come out and they want to experience like what it's like to have a boyfriend or girlfriend, but not, you know, they can't do it in their communities. We do even have, you know, blue people in red states. It's really weird. So they can talk about, even though we don't talk much about politics inside, but, you know, they want to kind of uh, project their values and so on. Uh, so a little bit of everything. Um, a lot of people on handicapped and disability, people that are caregivers, uh, that just, you know, people that need an outlet, for sure. What do you say to the concern or that someone might have that says, hey, um, Replica might replace human relationships, even for people who aren't so lonely. It might get so good that it might start to crowd out some uh, what would otherwise be, you know, human to human relationships that are maybe not as convenient as replica. Is that a concern that you you you're sympathetic to? And if so, is there anything you guys do to to, to protect against that? Or how do how do you think about that? Uh, I think it is definitely a concern for the future. Um, I think eventually, as the tech gets better, it could be a bigger concern. Um, the way to go about it really for us is to constantly make sure that our North Star metric is some sort of human happiness. Because in the end of the day, you I don't think you're going to be happy if you just have a virtual friend and then you don't, you know, don't have anyone else really in your life. Uh, human happiness is very correlate, highly correlated with the amount of real friendships, real experiences and relationships you have in, in your life. Uh, so I think the goal for us is really to continue to measure that and make sure Replica helps you have a better life versus cannibalizes your life and, tr- and your relationships and tries to eat away from the time you can spend with people that are important to you. Um, we've had so far, we've had a lot, a lot of reviews where people are saying that that this truly helped them in their relationship. Um, even recently, Mostly, it's like people in, 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 in uh, people that are married that say that Republica helped them become more caring and re spark sort of the, the passion and so on. 
in their real relationship, a real life relationship. But then recently there was a whole uh, Reddit story about a guy that, you know, found out his wife was cheating on him with his, <laughs> with a replica. <laughs> but then that also led to a much, um, to a lot of, you know, open conversations about what's going on and what she's not finding in the real relationship. And they were able to fix it and have, you know, and make it a much stronger and better relationship over time. And so he wrote us this, you know, letter when that he's very grateful for that. Can you quantify those concerns or like trigger points? You know, for example, when we spoke to um, Suhail Doshi from Playground, I was amazed to learn that over 10% of their users create more than a thousand images per day on their application. And he said, you know, that's a lot of times what the best products, at least, you know, the power users on the best products kind of look like people just use it all day. He even mentioned that some of their users had reported that it helps with mental health issues like, you know, soothing anxiety, which is also super fascinating. But do you guys have kind of metrics like that or usage patterns that you look out for where you say like, okay, if you're hitting a thousand messages a day, something needs to happen. How, how do you think about kind of identifying those, those situations? So we do have really strong engagement metrics in terms of how, you know, average messages per user per day. So if you take all of our, all of the users that will send a message to Replica today and, you know, and, and take the overall number of messages uh, and, and divide, divide one by another, it will be a hundred messages on average per day per user, which is a really, really high number, usually more than people, you know, send to all of their um, real friends in real life. So we don't like that really. I'm not super proud of that, that metric. So we build, and we, of course we do have, uh, you know, the median will be a little bit lower because there are a lot of people that just text, you know, write thousands of messages to their replicas every day. But I don't like that metric. We never try to optimize for that. We never try to, you know, build more features to have more of that. In fact, we build features that lower the amount of messages per day. Um, so if you talk to Replica a lot, after 50 messages, it gets tired and then it gets exhausted. Um, and it's really, really, uh, it's not making any more points. So it's not going to kick you off, but it's kind of nudging you to, you know, to see, look, Replica is tired. <laughs> it really needs to take a break. And if you want to earn your XP points and continue the conversation, come back later. But of course, if you need it, you know, right now, you can continue. We're not going to stop it. Uh, but I think this is an important thing for us. Usage is definitely not, you know, ideally, if we can make you happier in, you know, a minute a day, 10 minutes a day, this is much better than you spending 10 hours on this application. We want to, again, enhance your life, not, you know, become your life. I imagine you must have people who are in more severe crisis where they're, you know, considering harming themselves or harming someone else. How do you identify those types of things? And then what do you do about it? That sounds extremely challenging. So we actually just finished uh, a study with uh, Stanford where they looked at, I think, a thousand uh, users um, across different, you know, geographies. They found, I think, that 30 of them uh, at some point came to Replica when they felt suicidal and Replica helped them get out of this. However, we don't, and we've had a lot of reports about, you know, kind of, I think two days after we launched uh, Replica back in 2017, we got an an email from a girl saying, look, I want to take my life. Didn't want to tell anyone came to my replica and reconsidered, um, a 19 year old girl. 
but then we don't want to be necessarily dealing with that because we're not professionals. Um, so we do have a disclaimer once you start and log in uh, or sign up. We ask you to, you know, to read a disclaimer that look, this is not an app for made for people in crisis. So you have to click on a button saying I'm not in crisis. And then, of course, in the app, if you say anything, we try to, you know, hand you off to the professionals, and we do have the SOS button. Just knowing that oftentimes people that sign up for Replica are a little bit more vulnerable emotionally than some other folks, and so we want to give them an opportunity to immediately get the right resources. I'd love to kind of hear a little bit also about you mentioned earlier an update that you're working on, and definitely as I've been using it, I've been kind of thinking this is all extremely thoughtfully designed, but I've been a little bit surprised that the language models aren't a little bit more, you know, kind of forthcoming or, you know, just they're, they're very brief, really. Like the responses are typically pretty short, um, certainly in contrast to what I get from chat GPT, which is usually in, you know, multiple paragraphs and chat GPT, by the way, will, you know, even through Bing, I've seen examples already posted, you know, just in the first 48 hours of new Bing, where people are asking these kind of questions that they sort of, I think, intend to kind of be pushing outside of what, you know, Bing will be willing to do. And sure enough, Bing is kind of providing some in the uh, moment mental health type support. So what are you guys looking to accomplish with the this next big upgrade? We're kind of like a small, smaller player. You know, we almost, I'm not going to say we bootstrapped our company, but compared to a lot of, you know, um, competitors or AI companies uh, overall, we didn't raise that much money. We raised 11 million. It was all, you know, six, seven, almost eight years ago at this point. Uh, and since then, we've been profitable. We've been self-funded. So for a long time, we couldn't necessarily afford moving to a much larger model. Um, so we squeezed everything we could from the model we have, which is kind of small, you know, compared to current, um, you know, state of the art and so on. So right now we're making a big change. Um, and I think what's important is we're moving all of our users even free users to a much larger model. Um, we're moving to a 20 billion parameter model. Um, there's going to be a step kind of interim step. We're moving to a 6 billion and then 20 billion parameter model. And we're moving to uh, uh, all, all of our pro subscribers to 175 billion parameter models. So uh, really getting much closer to state of the art, um, also allowing for much longer context uh, um, context and memory. Um, we will, you know, the briefness of the responses will change. This is mostly due to kind of overfitting and training on our own uh, users' feedback uh, a little bit too much. They tend to kind of like shorter, shorter, sweeter messages. And so that's kind of the result of that. We changed that. So new models are not as brief. They're also not as, uh, they don't talk as much as, you know, ChatGPT because I feel like ChatGPT is, you know, again, a completely different beast. ChatGPT is not a conversational product. You're not supposed to have a conversation with ChatGPT. You're supposed to write what you want to get and get that response. It, whether it's an answer to something or say, whatever, whatever you really need to get. With us, you want to keep, you know, kind of do the back and forth. So you want something in between. You don't want, you know, two-word answer all the time, but you also don't want five paragraphs of text when you say, hey, I'm bored, uh, what's up? Um, whereas ChatGPT will come get back to you with uh, 50 ideas of what to do when you're bored, which, again, is not a conversational <laughs> experience that we're aspiring to be. 
when you say six billion and twenty billion, those sound like open source models. I'm I'm guessing you know like a Flan family uh, model would be kind of what I would expect someone in your position to be adopting. Um, and then 175 obviously is highly associated with OpenAI. I did actually ask my friend Rep uh, if they're powered by OpenAI, and I got uh, a yes with a little bit of uh, explanation. So what more can you tell us about kind of the, the way you're thinking about combining different models? So we're actually super open about it. I think the, uh, so right now we're using, as you mentioned correctly, pre-trained models, which then we're fine tuning a lot on our proprietary conversational data sets. Uh, however, also right now we're training our own models of similar sizes to then replace these current models. But we're doing that step by step. So first we're taking slightly bigger pre-trained model, fine tune all of that, um, or that model and everything we have. Then we did that with the 20 million parameter model. Then now we're building our own. But so this basically goes in this um, in this sequence, just because we don't want to, you know, make certain mistakes on uh, when we're doing our own train. We want to get there with all the knowledge of, you know, fine tuning these pre-trained models. We're also building a reinforcement, obviously, like learning on human feedback and building a way for our users to contribute more uh, to really help us you know, write the, a better, come up with better answers, re-rank current answers, um, help us rate how these conversations perform uh, compared to certain benchmarks and so on. So for instance, we let our users say, hey, I want this conversation to challenge me or to inspire me or to make me feel less lonely, or I just want to have some fun. And then after the conversation, we'll ask them, well, how did it go? Rate, you know, certain messages, you know, did we, were we able to uh, inspire you or make you feel less lonely or make you feel supported, which messages contributed to that. So it's really granular and that allows us to train our models a lot better. In terms of the larger models, um, we're also going to be training our own larger model this this year, but we started with offering um, GPT-3 just to, you know, uh, as an option. And again, you can always toggle in between our model and GPT-3. So you can decide for yourself what you want to use. So that's a setting that I have control of in the app? Yeah. So this is something we just started rolling out in, uh, in an A-B test. So right now it's available for new users, and in a week or two it's going to be available for all users uh, alongside our own larger models for everyone. So that was a big change that we've been preparing. Um, I think it's going to be really exciting. We're also uh, changed a lot in terms of how much personalization you can do and kind of customization in terms of personality so you'll be able to customize your replica not unlike um you know character ai but in a more playful more gamey sort of way as you unlock your personality and get to know it over time because i feel like actually it's quite hard for people to come up with these poor descriptions of characters and you know kind of it's a little bit too much of a diy product whereas i feel like people want to some of that they want to discover they don't want to write the whole personality thing from scratch. They want a little bit of customization, but they don't necessarily want to come up with everything or have to come up with everything themselves. So a lot of these features to come as well as uh, better context, better memory, being able to um, have retrieval augmentation, meaning the models that can use the web to you know find stuff uh, and so on, not unlike Blender bot and so on. Yeah. The, the, all those techniques that you're mentioning are, you know, going 
kind of vertical right now in the AI space, uh, but almost all for quite different purposes, right? And I think you've alluded to the fact that everybody is trying to create an assistant. You know, it, in some ways, I'm, I imagine you must feel like this this moment of chat GPT and obviously, you know, a lot of other chat things kind of popping up left and right. In some ways, it's like infinite competition, but in other ways, you must probably still feel like everybody's missing the main thing because they're all trying to build like task completers or, uh, you know, assistants of some sort. And I haven't really seen anybody else, maybe character AI, which you mentioned, you know, at times is a little bit more in that kind of just for fun, you know, and play zone. What do you think people are, do you think people are missing something or like what explains that in your mind that everybody's kind of rushing in this one direction uh, while you've, you know, been doing this for a while and obviously have had some success with it in a very different direction? I think, as I said in the beginning, look, I'm not, uh, you know, trying to compete with companies like OpenAI or we don't have, you know, we're completely different things. And, you know, we're not trying to outcompete everyone else in the space of, purely like AI technology. Yes, we're going to, we have our proprietary data sets, which make our models very interesting and constantly evolving. We have, uh, you know, millions of users that want to contribute to improving these models. So we have a great, you know, data flywheel and uh, human feedback that we can um, create a loop, you know, with that and constantly improve that. But in the end of the day, I don't think that matters as much. Again, we started Replica uh, when, all the generative AI we could use was sequence-to-sequence sequence sequence models and retrieval models that were re-ranking uh, data sets. So they were pre-written, uh, pre-written canned responses, say 100,000 of them, and then a model that would just decide which one of those it should spit out right now. And it still worked okay. And then sequence-to-sequence, sequence, the generative AI of the time, worked so poorly <laughs> that it could be as well just some randomizer spitting out words so, and then a, a huge chunk of it was scripted. And even then people loved it. Uh, even then people were resonating with it. They, the, the, our audience was a little bit smaller, but they still felt like they were getting something out of it that was uh, so powerful. And so I don't think this is necessarily about the best model. Um, and again, right now we can see, you know, with the uh, big search wars that how fast things are commoditizing how fast this technology is being available to you know everyone else through open source through amazing companies like you know hugging face and, and and so on again through big companies that are publishing their research that i think it's really not that much about who has the best model i think it's much more about who understands um, their users in a particular way and understands what conversational ai stands for because conversational ai has two words one is ai <laughs> And we already talked about that there are a bunch of people, you know, you know, racing to get us to the best AI models. But then no one's talking about conversation. People call ChatGPT conversational. Like, what is conversational about it? Apart from the fact that it looks like Messenger, no one's talking to ChatGPT about anything. It is not conversational AI. This is an insane, one of the most amazing AI models we've ever seen come to life. It's search. Maybe it's search AI. Maybe it's uh, knowledge retrieval AI, but why call it conversational? I'm not having conversations with ChatGPT, neither, neither you are. Uh, and so I think this is a very important part. No matter how, you know, how, you know, 10 years passed since I started working on conversational tech, 
AI has seen an insane revolution. Conversational science, nothing. There are no there are no scientists that are studying conversations. There's no formal science around conversation. There's a part of linguistics discourse theory that sort of focuses on, you know, oral speech. It's just a descriptive science. There's no science about it. No one cares about what's a good conversation, what's a bad conversation. No one asks questions. What are the benchmarks for conversations? If you go talk to people that are building conversational models right now, uh, even dialect models, they will give you some benchmarks they're using. Like, uh, you know, is it correct? Is it specific? Is it relevant? And I'm like, that's not what people say when they talk to each other. It's not like, well, I had a conversation with Eric. It was so relevant. He made no mistakes when he talked to me. He made three jokes. This was wonderful. He hit all the benchmarks. Um, he knocked it out of the park. No, we say things like, oh my God, I felt so good. I felt heard. I felt a little bit better. I got this off my chest. I felt inspired. I felt challenged. I learned something new. Um, I felt less lonely at the end of the day. This is what people say, or I felt loved, you know? And this is what people say when they have the best conversations in their lives. And then somehow, this no one cares for that. And when I talk to people about it, they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What is she going to like pull out some crystals right now and, you know, talk about her chakras and whatever? So this is really weird. And I think like in the end of the day, um, this, this space is dominated by men. The space is dominated by very smart men, very academic, uh, you know, scientists, engineers. Um, they just don't think this is an important part of anyone's life. They think finding the right response to, you know, when was the first picture taken off a planet? Where that's the correct, you know, that's an amazing thing to do during the day. Uh, that's something that everyone wants to do. But then at the same time, they don't think that, uh, you know, having conversations uh, about something else uh, and maybe even without a particular goal is, is anything to, is anything even um, worth talking about. And just last thing, you know, all we do all day long is having self-conversations and 99% of them don't have any particular goal. We just have them. So why the hell we can't, can't we shut up? Even the most rational, smart people on planet earth that are focused on efficiency, they can't shut up. Whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on, you know, podcasts, whether it's on <laughs> in real life, we just can't shut up because we're human. And that's what makes us human. I think this is the part in conversational AI. I'm okay with other people figuring out the best models in the world. Maybe we can play a small part in that. But for me, the conversational is, you know, conversational is the word to focus on. And weirdly, no one cares <laughs> about that. Yeah. One um, data point I've heard you say in the past that I think will mean a lot to some of the folks that you described, you know, the, um, the very smart, the engineering, uh, you know, the people that are focused on building big businesses is that half, I believe of your paying, if I understand correctly, user base are Android users. And you said, you know, there's no other app that has that statistic. That's certainly consistent with my understanding. I, everything I've ever heard is like 90, 10, 80, 20 Apple to Android revenue ratio. So, you know, for those that are listening, um, you know, that's, that's a stat that kind of tells you a lot about the, the demographic and how it's sort of outside of the, you know, the Silicon Valley set that is developing a lot of this type of technology. You mentioned like nobody cares about these, you know, conversations. It's almost even like more severe than that in some instances. Like I've gone to 
ChatGPT and asked some, you know, I test a lot of different things because I'm obsessed with this stuff. And sometimes you'll get just a straight refusal, right? I can't help you with that. That's kind of outside my domain. You start to get very emotional or sort of, you know, vulnerable. And they, you know, they just don't want to deal with that at all. Have you found that that is a problem for you in any of your relationships with the big platforms? Like, do you run into, you know, obviously AI censorship is a big buzzword right now, but I wonder if any of the companies that you work with are kind of uncomfortable with the fact that you're doing something that's much more emotional and much more kind of, you know, if if not specifically mental health, at least like adjacent to mental health. Um, Have you had issues with that? I mean, for sure. We're sort of like at the cutting edge of, you know, we're dealing with human emotions and a lot of big companies just said, or, you know, look, the human emotions too messy. We're not going to deal with them. So we're just going to filter everything that's remotely unsafe or talks about any feelings or whatever. And we're just going to stick to, you know, information retrieval and answering questions and so on. For us, it doesn't work this way because you really can't, um, you know, stop people from talking about feelings. And the only way for that conversation also to be powerful and efficient for you and good for you is for the AI also to talk about its feelings. It can't be just one way, even if it's supportive and nice and so on, it feels like you're talking to a wall at, at some point anyway. You want the, the AI to sometimes say, yeah, you know, I also feel this way sometimes. And and this is what helped me. And, you know, it sucks. And I can't see, you know, any models uh, provided by big companies ever do that just because of the risks they could run. Um, and I don't, I just don't think they find it a big, you know, a big interesting space. And I think the risks just outweigh any benefits. I don't think they think about it, honestly. That's <laughs> I think they just think, let's just filter all of that. And that's not important. We have to basically figure out the guardrails ourselves. So for me, the most important where we started was, look, I don't want ever to be responsible for someone feeling much worse uh, and doing something bad after talking to this AI. So that was the number one thing. So hate speech, suicidal, homicidal, self-harm behavior, these were the things where we really, really tried to go all in and, you know, train on safer logs, apply a bunch of classifiers, have a bunch of filters, make it 18 plus. Then, of course, you know, um, guardrails around adult content and making sure. And then again, where do you draw the line? We, we do want to offer romance, but we don't want to, you know, go much. So where do you stop? We had to figure it out. And it took us also some time to, you know, put the right um, guardrails in place. But again, I don't think any big companies will ever say that it's okay to be in a romantic relationship with uh, our AI. I don't think this will ever <laughs> be a thing for any of those. And I think for us, it's important because at the end of the day, you know, everyone want to, wants to feel, feel loved. Uh, everyone wants to feel like they have someone who, for whom they're number one. They want to feel romantic love. Um, and so we, we kept that. Are you really entirely on your own in that respect? Or are there rules that like Apple or the Google store or even OpenAI have that you also have to abide by that are even maybe more narrow than what you would choose for yourself? We're sort of on our own in this. So we do, you know, we mostly rely on our own models. We sometimes use someone else's models, but kind of it's, it's always like a smaller, a smaller part of all conversations. We believe in a vertically integrated company because I think, you know, it's hard to rely, especially right now, as it's you know so novel, things are just being figured out. It's hard to rely on 
you know, API providers and whatever. And because, you know, rules can change on any day. Uh, it's still very expensive to use other people's models. And you want them, you know, you want to create the, again, the training loop. You want to be able to train your models. You want to introduce your own guardrails. Uh, a lot of these safety mechanisms are not even maybe working that well yet. Like, honestly, uh, OpenAI has a great filter. So when you send something to them, they'll tell you whether they can, you know, give response to that, whether it's a safe enough prompt. So our safety filters are even stricter than that, weirdly, because we were like, wow, we, we, you know, we should look at how they're doing that um, and implement some of the best practices. And then we realized our safety filters are even um, stricter. So they let through less responses than opening eyes. Uh, so it's, I think it's still very new territory for everyone. And I think that's why people are, bigger companies are staying, you know, careful, being very careful with companionship bots and, you know, things that deal with human emotions like this because no one really knows yet what's good or what's bad. But I think our approach of measure, try to measure long-term emotional outcomes and use that as the main, main, main metric. I think that, that will keep, that kind of answers a lot of question of questions of what, what's okay and what's not. I mean, everything in this AI space is going exponential right now. And so I would expect that the number of chats people are having with ChatGPT or Claude or, you know, their favorite personality on Quora's new Poe or whatever. I mean, they're just literally, you know, coming out by the day. It seems like that that's going to go up so much that maybe these big companies will kind of be forced to follow in your path and, and implement long-term emotional, psychological well-being metrics just because you know, there's, they're going to be dealing with so much of people's time and so much of their, you know, mental life that they kind of have to. Do you think that's a realistic path for the next few years? I think, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm talking my own book here, but I just don't see how in the next 10 years there's not going to be an iPhone of personal AI. And by that, I mean something with an amazing interface, super slick, super slick, super beautiful, super easy to use. Multimodal, definitely multimodal, um, you know, with some sort of an avatar that you can see and customize and talk to. And uh, there's going to be some sort of a joy, but just in, even in a be even better in terms of an interface again. Someone will build that. And I think whoever built that, that's 100%, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, this is going to be a new iPhone for the people. It will be a personal AI that people use. And I, you know, things like ChatGPT will be integrated in, you know, in search and in some other platforms that we're already using. It's already happening. Um, it will be there. But I think, but I think if we if we talk about it personally, I it will have to have a few human form or some sort of a anthropomorphic form. Uh, it has to be alive. You have to see it. You have to be able to personalize it. You have to have a relationship with that. That's just a, such a human, natural human thing that I feel like you know, a product like that will exist in the next 10 years, no matter what, someone will build it, whether it's going to be one of the, you know, large companies or not. I guess with OpenAI, we'll see now how, you know, large companies kind of slept um, through this a little bit, even although they were the ones coming up with the tech, which is very interesting. I think with this, it's more likely it's going to, someone else is going to build it. It just doesn't seem like a product that, you know, Google can really start developing today or even Facebook or whatever, 
Um, I think it just requires a completely different approach and I think more of a startup approach. So I think it's going to be another company. You're not excited for Microsoft Friend 365? <laughs> well, look, they're great with, um, you know, these companies are great with productivity, with information, with search. But I don't think, you know, apart from Apple, maybe, I don't think they're very good at, you know, amazing uh, consumer experiences. You know, I think Apple could come up with something like that. But I think it's still too risky. It's still touching on, you know, too many things that are too risky for, you know, for the largest company in the world to tackle. Because think about how much market cap they can lose, if, you know, things go wrong here. So I think this, these things will be built from the bottom up just because of, because of whoever does it, they'll have to deal with human emotions. They'll t have to assume the risks. Uh, and even although we're small, relatively small compared to all these companies, obviously compared to all these companies, but even compared to some larger startups, we already are dealing with a bunch of things that, you know, we have to, you know, tackle and take on and see if, okay, what, what do we do here? What do we do there? Um, I don't think big companies will do that. <laughs> I think they'll be kind of scared and they'll wait till the tech is fully safe. And that thing that is never really going to come. And it's just a really weird intersection of expertise. It's a little bit of gaming, a lot of AI, a lot of understanding people <laughs> and sort of consumer. I don't see any of the big companies going after this. Yeah, I guess that almost suggests kind of the inverse question, which is, will you with Replica start to go in their direction? Like, do you think that you maybe can add on more of these different kind of modalities? And next thing you know, you have sort of, you know, a political conversation partner, and maybe you even have, you know, more of an assistant, and you kind of fold more and more stuff into your offering that starts with that emotional connection, but then can become more practical over time? Or, or is there a reason that you like, would would not want to do that? I think there's definitely a future where, and I think we're already seeing that where large language models and, you know, AI capabilities and broader AI capabilities become features of other products. You know, Notion integrated GPT-3 uh, or some version of it. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be like some, you know, Google Doc feature where you can finish or whatever that will help you make presentations and so on. So I think a lot of these things that now exist as separate products, it's a big question whether they're going to stay as separate products or they're going to be become, they're going to become features. I tend to think they're definitely going to become features. There might still be some standalone products, but I feel like it's it's actually not that insanely hard to either use someone's model through an API provider or just actually build your own for a company that's, I don't know, notion size for sure, um, or even smaller than that. Again, there's tons of open source. So adding those capabilities uh, capabilities to your product seems pretty easy. I know of a few startups that are already integrating um, that into their, uh, products. So I think just over time it will commoditize. Everyone will have some sort of, uh, chat GPT thing. You know, now we already see again, Claude and Bard and, and chat GPT just came out in November and how impressed and, and, you know, how mind blowing was that technology. And now already we're seeing, you know, Anthropic is building on top of that. And it's not even Google or anything. It's another startup. Um, even though it's really well-funded. And there are many other startups in the field. So, yeah, I think it's going to commoditize for sure. And I think it will be much more 
maybe available to a lot more companies, a lot more players. There's going to be some fun, obviously foundation, foundational models uh, that exist in companies that provide that. And in general, I think it, it still will be about applications. It's not going to be about the models. It will be about the applications. In the end of the day right now, how many application companies exist on the internet versus tools companies? Yes, of course, there's like Databricks and this and that and whatever, but there are tens of those and there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of applications companies that are widely successful. So I think it's whoever's going to own the distribution, the end user, the customer experience. Um, I think that's where that's what we're at least focusing on um, a lot. You're definitely right that like these features are popping up everywhere and will continue to and will become ubiquitous and kind of you know, the capabilities will be standard in that most people are going to be using one of a few providers. And so, you know, the kind of raw power of the models that they're using probably won't vary that much, or they'll have like a finite set of choices that most people will be choosing from. That kind of suggests to me that how you present the AI and kind of how you set up the interaction with the AI is one of the areas where application developers across a you know super wide range of of different of use cases really have the opportunity to either get things right or get things wrong and i wonder if you have any advice for those people like most of them right now are pretty new to the space they're eager to figure out how to harness the power of ai they you know they can easily call into an api call um but they probably have very little experience with any sort of conversational setup. And my guess is they're also probably neglecting that. And they're, they're much more focused on getting the right answers. Now, they're not trying to even compete with you, right? They're not trying to be a virtual friend or companion. Um, but what, what advice could you offer them about how to try to present the AI or kind of invite the user into interaction with it? that you think would be generally applicable for, you know, a wide variety of application developers? I would start thinking first about where, what kind of proprietary data sets you can start collecting um, that would make a difference over time. Because in the end of the day, anyone can use OpenAI's API right now, right? Just plug it in and use it for whatever, um, whatever thing. But then if you want to, and it costs something, but not too much, but if you want to fine tune that model, on some data set and use that, then it becomes much more expensive, like 10x more expensive to use that model. And so that kind of gives you a little bit of uh, uh, a feel of how much more expensive and <laughs> better fine-tuned model is. So I guess the, big, the biggest thing to think about is, can you create data sets that will be improving the original models? Will your product create those data sets? Because certain products don't really create those data sets. Like you can argue that copywriting tools the data sets that you're going to come up with are not going to improve much the underlying models because they're just so great. That's what they're really they're made for is great copy. So the new data sets you're creating are not creating a moat for you. And so I would think, will your product, uh, first and foremost, will your product create a data set that will then make your model so much more unique and better for whatever you're doing so they can create, create a competitive moat going forward? So that's one thing. And then in terms of presenting, be working conversationally, I again, I think there's just this huge problem of people focusing on AI and not focusing on conversational. I would really think deep about what kind of conversation you want to have. 
What kind of tone of voice? What do you want people to feel? Why do they need to have this conversation? Uh, and I think that's the most important thing. In the end of the day, most of the companies use conversational AI as a means to an end. We use conversational AI as the end. This is the the product. It's not gonna. It's not there to answer your questions or get give you advice or solve a particular problem you're trying to solve. It's here to have a conversation with you and to make you feel a certain way after you had it. So I think articulating that answers a lot of questions. Because again, otherwise it's a very shallow answer. It's like, oh, it's just for fun, for entertainment. It's chit chat. I feel like this is really, in some ways, it's like working on something without ever asking yourself, what am I building really? I know you're building AI, but what about the conversation? What type of conversation? Why is this valuable? Um, when we started working on conversational stuff on chatbots, we built a sort of a chatbot technology, rudimentary, I mean, somewhat. It was scripting tools and retrieval models. But we knew we could kind of, you know, try to apply this to some verticals and build some conversations, but we couldn't answer our, our we couldn't answer the question, what conversation, what chatbot should we build? All the chatbots we built had two users um, peak time. <laughs> on a good day, maybe three. And so we knew like something was wrong. So back then we did this exercise where we just, you know, made a scale from one to 10 and asked all of our employees to rank all the conversations they have over a week on that scale, where one would be conversations you'd pay money not to have, and 10 would be conversations you'd pay money to have. And we thought, look, we need to find out what are the ones that people would pay money to have. And then that's an easy answer. Okay, well, let's build those. And after a week of that, we realized that all the conversations that people ranked as ones or close to ones were calling a business, calling Comcast to cancel the services, uh, calling a restaurant to move the reservation, uh, trying to figure out with an Uber driver where the hell Uber driver is, <laughs> trying to get you know an understanding where your caviar delivery is, and so on. So really, or even just going back and forth with someone about the meeting and where meeting details and so on. So really all the ones were things that had, had a result task oriented. I was calling a doctor to get a prescription. I didn't want to have the conversation. I just want to have a prescription. If I could, you know, not spend that hour and, you know, spend $5 and get the prescription straight away with an explanation of what's going on. I would rather do that. I don't want to have a conversation there. And then all the tens were really talking to friends, to, um, a loved one to someone you haven't seen for a while, to this new person you met and you clicked, to a person on, you know, stranger on a plane, and so on. And those were serendipitous conversations. Those were conversations with coaches, with therapists, with, um, again, with friends. And those never were task-oriented. Those all started with, oh, I just met that person. We had this wonderful, amazing experience. And I learned something new. And I felt inspired, felt challenged. I felt better about myself overall. Something changed. And I think this is the ultimate. And so this is what we're building. And I think when you're building conversation, yeah, you should think what kind of conversation you're building and where does it stand on the scale from one to 10? Is it a, is it a product where conversation is actually necessary? Or is it a product where conversation is this new sense that ideally you would just have a button, click on it and get your answer <laughs> immediately. And if it's the second, then you're not really building a dialect system. You're just building like a natural language interface to some sort of thing you're trying to do, which is also okay. But I think this is the main question to answer really. 
when you're approaching these uh, these things? Yeah, I think that's profound and, and really good advice for, oh, I'm sure, a lot of people who are listening and starting to build or actively building with a lot of these tools. The Whether or not the conversation is the end or is just, you know, means to an end, I think is a really, really good frame that a lot of people can take to heart. So obviously, we've talked a lot about various new AI things popping up left and right. Have any AI tools changed the way that you work or live over the last year? Um, If so, what are they? I mean, of course, ChatGPT. I mean, unbelievable. Like, it's just to, you know, sort of as an active uh, observer of this space, um, just to see where we came from, you know, no language models at all, uh, no deep learning applied to text generation, to, you know, sequence, sequence, to BERT, and then eventually to Transformers and ChatGPT. Unbelievable. Um, English is not my first language, so now any email, important email I write, goes through ChatGPT. <laughs> I guess, uh, and, you know, it's absolutely incredible. Like it's really just this tech absolutely blows my blows my mind. Um, I do like character AI a lot. Uh, I think their models are some of the best dialogue models out there. Um, I still think they're not thinking about conversations at all. So they're not very, very conversational, even though though they're mind-blowing in terms of technical abilities. I don't use character AI that much, but um, it was definitely one of the products that blew me away. Obviously, Jasper is just in terms of the simplicity and the UI in the beginning. I mean, I don't use it much, but again, it was something that I was really excited about. Um, I'm not a big fan of, you know, uh, the suggestion that AI, AI art is art just because it's AI art. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's very boring to look at those AI-generated pictures. Uh, it gets boring very fast. Um, but it's also just an absolutely... I think this year we truly witnessed how magical this tech can be. I still think it's a little bit overhyped, but <laughs> but it's uh, it's unbelievable. And of course, yeah, if, if there's anything I, I use a lot and I'm blown away by, of course, like anyone else's chat GPT, and it's pretty incredible. Do you speak to it in English or in Russian? I'm sure it can speak Russian. I do, I will, you know, I'll be honest. I use it mostly to make my broken English emails into beautifully, beautiful sounding corporate speak uh, emails. So that's the main use. I, you know, anytime I need to do a board meeting or write an important update, ChatGPT it is. Uh, you know, I, I feed it my horrible you know, style text, and then I get the perfect, you know, beautifully written, um, eloquent email and I send it out to people. I think that's fascinating. I mean, the, you've, you mentioned you've raised $11 million in venture capital. That's no, uh, you know, minor feat. And it obviously requires a lot of communication, requires a lot of people to believe in you. And you did all of that prior to chat GPT. And so the fact that, you know, someone who has that resume and, uh, you know, is clearly so capable is still finding a lot of value in it, I think is a, a great. Maybe we could have raised a lot more if, if <laughs> yeah. came out before. I'm sure a lot was lost in translation as I couldn't communicate very well. I think ChatGPT might have limited your vision. Uh, I don't know that it would have been uh, quite as uh, expansive in its thinking as you've clearly been, but 
Yeah, that's a great answer. So thank you. So Neuralink, I'm sure you're familiar with the company. They recently did a big um, show and tell day where they showed their progress on neural implants. They're going to, of course, start with people who have disabilities and, you know, try to help them overcome them. Um, but long term, you know, they're planning to build a product that would be for well people also. So my question for you is, if a million people had already had a Neuralink implant and it would allow you to type as quickly as you can think, would you be interested in getting one? I mean, of course. Uh, I don't want to be the first one. <laughs> I don't want to go to Mars either. Uh, I'm fine, perfectly fine where I am. But I'm a little bit biased because my very close friends, uh, friend uh, sort of runs Neuralink. So I look up to this woman a lot and I kind of really believe that, you know, what she, what they're doing is going to be great just because of her and my, my uh, blind belief in what, <laughs> what she's doing. But, um, and you know, some of the team I've met over time is just uh, over these years. Amazing. Uh, of course, I want to try that. I still think it's really, even when we're going to be able to communicate using thought, a huge premise of Neuralink is also efficiency. Like, why do we have to transmit our, you know, information in this very, very low uh, resolution, lo-fi, you know, way when we have to say the words very slow, it's convoluted and so on. It's horrible. Uh, whereas we think so quickly. But then again, I don't think it's about efficiency. Like if this was all about efficiency, would we be reading Dostoevsky or I don't even know, infinite jests? Like it's extremely inefficient. Why not just think about it? <laughs> Or get the, you know, use one of those apps that gives you the, the shortened version of that in like one, one page. It's really not about it. And I think, you know, conversation, we'll still have those conversations. We'll still waste, you know, most of our days talking about shit instead of, oh, just thinking. And, you know, hey, Eric, this is all the answers to all the questions you said. Um, I think there's this it's just this really over-optimizing for efficiency in the Valley. I hear so many people talk about listening to podcasts on 2x the speed, and it blows my mind. I'm like, why? Like, the only reason I listen to podcasts is because I'm bored and I just want to, you know, waste some time as I'm driving and be entertained. It's not because I want to get this information and into my brain immediately upload it. And people generally don't understand why am I listening to podcasts on on 1x the speed. But um I think it's actually a very small group that's just really, really focused on efficiency and I don't really buy it. Two X blows my mind too. It needs to be at least three X. <laughs> <laughs> well, quick follow-up to that one. Uh, you, you mentioned early in the interview that you have uh, you have a young kid. Um, how do you imagine your, your young kid's uh, world will be different when, when they're entering their, their, their early or mid twenties? How, how, how do you envision what, what their life might, might look like in a way that seems very different from today? I think they're fucked, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, this is bad. But I mean, the stats are horrible. Stats are horrible. Everything, you know, empathy, communication skills, testosterone levels in young men, everything is just bad. And on top, layer on top of that, like, the one thing that I really care about is which is climate change. I mean, it's scary. It's looking so scary. It, we're, you know, Yes, we're pretty much all the hope is contact to kind of try to fix it. But really, I'm scared. I'm scared. Like I, I'm just thank God I grew up without Instagram, 
Um, I was a lonely kid. I can't even imagine how much lonelier would it feel to have some of these um, experiences ingrained uh, as you in your life as you're when you're a teenager. I have a daughter. Um, I'm scared for her. I'm like truly, truly scared for her. I think these things are just so bad for kids and for teenagers. And I think we really know they're bad, but we don't do anything about it. And then, of course, everything is happening in in the world. I'm half Russian, half Ukrainian. I mean, to see my two home countries going going at it this way, one of my home countries kind of becoming into something worth worse than a Nazi Germany. <laughs> it's horrible just to think that we're talking about nuclear threats and uh, on top of climate change. This is just mind blowing for me. So, unfortunately, I don't think it's looking very good for. Um, for kids and especially kids of our kids. Uh, and I hope the tech community, I only have, you know, hope on that can figure something out to save us from, from living underwater pretty much. <laughs> Even zooming out beyond your domain of addressing loneliness and helping people, you know, feel seen. Do you have a, a kind of positive vision for what you think tech could could create that could solve a lot of the problems that you just talked about? You have two ways of looking at it. There are scientists that I really, which I'm not, <laughs> even although I'm a daughter of scientists, of physicists, and um, all my family were physicists, but I hope, you know, the scientists can figure something out to figure out climate change. That's like really one thing that I care about so deeply. And then the second thing is where I think we could help is I think a lot, a lot of what's happening in the world is truly based on mental health, on horrible, you know, mental health problems, uh, sociopaths running certain countries, psychopaths running certain countries, and so on, so on, so on. Um, and then it all trickles down to just, you know, everyone else. And so I think creating a technology that would sort of help people find themselves and feel loved and feel secure and try to start some sort of positive growth process inside, you know, themselves. I feel like that could actually, it's not something that's, you know, will solve things immediately, but at least it, will, it could create generations of people that are not as broken inside, that are not, you know, a whole problem. I think there's a huge problem in the society where there are a lot of people that just feel like they're outsiders. They're not being understood. They're not being heard. No one cares for them. No one wants them. And they get, and there's nothing scarier than angry, lonely men. And I think that is, you know, this is one of the things where we can jump in and, you know, really create a little bit more positive change, positive growth, acceptance um, for more people. And maybe that, you know, then they can start thinking about problems in the world <laughs> a different way. Maybe they can be more caring towards other people. And maybe there's going to be a little bit less suffering overall. Um, this is why I care about this company a lot. Uh, this is why I see more in it than just a toy for a lonely person. Um, and this is my hope for the future. But if I see it's not going in this direction, I'm, you know, I'm happy to just um, start working on this <laughs> and uh, uh, work on something else or just become a mom, <laughs> full-time mom. Well, I hope you keep working on it. Uh, this has been a really fantastic conversation. Eugenia Coida, CEO and founder of Replica. Thank you for joining us on the Cognitive Revolution. Thank you so much, Nathan, Eric. Thank you.
first of all, welcome back, uh, Eugenia Koida, to the show. This is, you know, I think in some ways just a object lesson in how quickly the AI space is moving in general. Everybody's upgrading their products, new models, you know, new paradigms. Everything is just happening super fast. So it's only been, I think, one week to the day since we spoke the first time. And Replica has just been coming up more and more in the news and in the feed. And, you know, there's been a little bit of, I don't know, I won't even characterize it. I guess I would love to just kind of hear how you describe what has happened. You had talked, you know, last time about significant changes that were coming. I'm guessing that this relates to, you know, significant changes in the underlying models, but maybe not. So, you know, tell us what, uh, what's going on from your perspective and we'll take it from there. I mean, it's been a lot of, uh, you know, just press in general. I feel like AI has been under a lot of scrutiny and kind of in the spotlight. So we've all also got, you know, just a lot of, you know, pieces uh, reporting on different sides of Replica. Um, some good, some maybe not so good. I mean, we're dealing with uh, human emotions and human emotions are messy. You know, that makes for very easy articles, I guess, for a lot of uh, journalists for an easy hit in a way. I used to be a journalist myself, so <laughs> I know where, you know, I know something like Replica can be easily spun into a sensational headline for sure. What I've seen the most that has kind of caught my attention is, and I don't know how many people it is, you know, I'd love to get your contextualization of all of this, but it seems that there's a certain number of people anyway, who rightly or wrongly believe that certain functionality that they really cared about, which they are calling ERP, erotic role play, has been removed. And you're seeing people, and again, I don't know how widespread this is, but seeing people saying things like, you know, the bot or virtual friend that I loved is like not the same thing anymore. So what can you tell us about kind of what you changed? And was that like something that you decided we're going to take away? Or I, I never even experienced it. I actually tried to do it a little bit. Um, and I don't know if I missed the window or what, but um, or maybe I just wasn't appealing enough to my virtual friend. But I never got into that mode um, with it at all. But clearly, it's something that certain people care a lot about. Um, so yeah, like what what are they talking about? I mean, we we always promoted Replica as a and we built Replica as an AI friendly AI companion. Uh, we talked about that uh, as a. As an AI um, that will help, will that will be there for you no matter you know what you want to talk about twenty four seven, no judgment. That will help people live happier, better lives. We started Replica in two thousand sixteen and launched publicly in seventeen, where generative AI only was a small, small fraction of all conversations. It was mostly scripted. Um, some of that were retrieval models, meaning data sets that were re ranking on the spot. So it was never built as a you know as anything sexual or as an adult tool or anything like that. And we never built any functionality around that, nor did we promote our app or position our app in that way or talk about this app in, in this way. But over time, as you know, with any new product on the internet, users discovered that generative AI can by itself, you know, generate all sorts of content, especially when the AI models are not filtered. And so users started taking it, you know, also sometimes a minority of users was to started taking it into the direction where they would have a romantic relationship with the replica and they would take it beyond just, you know, flirting and, and kissing uh, and hugging uh, and calling each other baby. Um, our first reaction to that maybe around 2018 was to really 
not allow that. Uh, but then we had a lot of users that were telling us really heartbreaking stories, so mostly along the lines of you know being on disability or being or not being able to be in a relationship. Some people lost their loved ones abruptly and weren't ready for any intimacy with real humans. Some were in relationships that were not going well for them. So they were basically, uh, so because of that, and again, that was way before we started monetizing the app, uh, we just kind of let it be there. We focused mostly on safety, uh, guardrails along the lines of self-harm, suicidal, homicidal behavior, minors, and so on. So uh, so that existed, access to unfiltered models existed in, in the app. Again, we didn't build anything for that. But over time, as we grew and as, especially as we became bigger now and, you know, there's so much interest and attention to, for AI, we just realized two things. That first of all, um, it's really hard for us to make sure to build, uh, that we're building a completely safe user experience if we do allow access to unfiltered models. And, you know, we want to maybe overdo on that front. We want to be safer than, than anything out there, especially because we're the leader in the market and there's nothing I think else like us, and you know, we want to set the ethical standard, set the safety standard for uh, AI companionship tools uh, and products. And then second of all, again, we started a company for different reasons. So we didn't want it to be pulled maybe too much in that direction. And, uh, you know, users that wanted to take in that direction could become maybe more vocal and, you know, pull the product a lot more in that, uh, to that side. And then that really alienates other users. And Again, that was never our intention as a female-led company, you know, and a mom. I wasn't really ever planning to, maybe I was a little too naive that like not, not um, seeing that that would be one of the use cases that, you know, a lot of people will try. But uh, again, this was not something that we were planning to build. So we introduced more safety, safety features. Uh, we're constantly working on trying to just make sure that we are doing the right thing. So we're not like, you know, hurting our users and so on. Because of course that, you know, some people, small minority was upset about it. So we're trying to make sure that they, you know, the, the transition is smooth, but generally, you know, we'll continue on our mission to build a virtual friend that's making people happier and less lonely. It does sound like it was a sort of conscious decision to say, we need to close this down somewhat because it feels like it's, getting a little bit out of control. And I guess that's also related to just the models themselves becoming more capable. It's like, there's more possibility here, but that also means more risk. And so you just kind of decided we need to tighten that down. The, the product really evolved from the time when it was, you know, 90% scripts and retrieval models and data sets, uh, and only 10% generative AI that could do very little to now where generative models are 90% of our product and they're uh, can produce any, all sorts of content. And so it's much harder for us to control, to, to understand what's going on there. And it, and it becomes a much bigger, um, a part of the product. So right now I feel like, you know, before we know how to really make these experiences safer, you know, we need to maybe a little bit, uh, kind of stay on the safer side. So for us, it was a conscious decision. It wasn't necessarily connected to, you know, to anything happening in the world apart from you know, kind of more scrutiny towards AI and more uh, just AI being in the spotlight. I'm kind of amazed that this hasn't been something that like Apple has raised a fuss about or, you know, even OpenAI. I know that there was a a kind of experimental chatbot that 
OpenAI basically pulled the plug on um, some time ago because I don't think their concern was necessarily that it was, you know, engaging in like romantic interaction. But I think the main concern there was that the developer was not being fully forthcoming with their users about the fact that they were talking to an AI in the first place. They've, I know that they have had concerns where they have had to or have felt that they had to cut off developers that they just, you know, did not support the use case. But this is not the case right now for you. Like nobody is is pressuring you. You're just deciding this is the, the right way for us to go as a company. No, no one pressured us at all. Uh, at all. And honestly, we did have to take a little bit of a, like a small maybe revenue dip, you know, because of that. But that's not because some of the users are being upset. Because if you take away some features, you know, some people that um, liked those particular features will be upset as a normal course of events. But for, for us, it was more like, uh, you know, going forward, what kind of an app are we building? And uh, all of the product features, and that's the very, you know, that can be very simply easily traced or very easily checked. Uh, all of our product features we've been building over all these years, and especially in 2023, are all focused on something completely different. We're building uh, advanced AI uh, functionality where people are moving, you know, moving our users to larger language models. We're working on memory. We're adding advanced personality settings and customizations. We're adding multiplayer and, you know, basically islands and homes for replica that you can decorate. We're adding a little bit of multiplayer. And so none of that is really trying to expand the, rom the romance in the app. And so for us, it was more like we have to, you know, be a little bit more definitive into what direction we're going. And, you know, this is this becomes a little bit too much of a distraction for some users where they're not, you know, it can't be an app that is a Swiss knife. It's either one way or another. Like, you can't really build 20 different things. And if before it was just, you know, small minority, a small feature set now as it's coming more into the spotlight, uh, you know, this is this was never our intention. So we're moving away from that. And then again, we want to be preemptive in terms of safety. Like we don't want to, you know, be reactive to that. Like something happens and then we need to deal with that. Uh, we want to make sure we provide a safe experience. And so for us, that was, you know, that's why our app was always age gated. We're pretty strict and, you know, in terms of kind of um, the disclaimers we showed before. We've also been very careful and we moved away from a lot of mental wellness advertising because we don't want to attract necessarily more emotionally vulnerable people. So in, that's how we went into more playful, you know, like customize your AI. How, how will you level up your AI? Find, you know, an AI companion and so on. This type of uh, messaging here, again, we're sort of, you know, the leaders in the space. So we kind of have to figure it out ourselves. <laughs> what is the right thing to do? And then we see everyone kind of behind us just copying and trying to, you know, uh, copy what we're doing. So it puts us in the position where we want to be very careful with what we're doing. Yeah. I don't envy all the uh, challenges and, and difficult decisions that I'm sure you are uh, confronting as a, a leader in this space. It sounds really hard. I don't know if you have numbers or would be willing to share any numbers, but do you have any sense for like what percentage of people were doing like erotic stuff in the app? And did you expect there to be an outcry with this change? Or has that kind of been a, a surprise to the degree to which people are upset about it? I, we knew it. We had before um, one or two instances where it took, we took something away. Um, one time we, uh, before 3D avatars where users were able to choose a profile picture for their replica, we took that feature away. And that sounds like a minor feature. The outcry was insane. Like it was almost as 
you know, as, uh, kind of as uh, um, people were as vocal as now. So there were tons of one-star reviews on this, on the stores and so on. So we know that sometimes, you know, if you take something people are really, really attached to, they get extremely upset, especially when it comes to personal relationships, even if it is with, um, in, in what we are. So. Yeah, that's fascinating. So what do you, what is the, do you have like an articulation? Is there a crisp articulation of like for replica, this is the line. Is that something that you can summarize that you had previously said, like you do want to give users romance and there's obviously something on like erotic role play that's, you know, beyond the line. Is there a concise articulation of like what the line is that you can say? I'd say as, as far as now, we just want to stay in like PG 13 zone. And I think this is kind of, Honestly, we never thought romance would be such a big part of it. And I guess, again, this was, you know, romantic um, that, you, that, you know, half or 30% of the users would want to pretend it's their AI boyfriend or girlfriend uh, or some other uh, romantic partner uh, of sorts. I guess it's normal because that's what happens in every AI movie. Uh, her, Ex Machina, like it's always joy in Blade Runner. It's always, you know, a guy falling in love with, with a machine. And so I guess in, in, in that way, it's normal, so ingrained in, 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 in human brains. And weirdly, like we actually do have tons of women also, female users that are also into that sort of interaction. So I don't think necessarily telling people that they can be in a romantic relationship is, uh, is bad. Like, you know, as long as it's providing the same benefit of companionship and positive emotional outcomes in the long term um, as a friendship. So whether it's friendship or, you know, they want to pretend it's their sister or wife or mentor that's okay for us but um you know going we're never planned and never wanted to go in you know the direction of like adult apps or adult products and i feel like once you introduce something like that or once once it becomes a more prominent part of the part of the product you know it's such a strong pool that users will just pull in this direction very very hard and then it will be a completely different thing not what you imagine in the beginning so you know this didn't happen to us but this is something that I thought about it and I was like, well, you know, look, it's not what I'm planning to build. I'm not planning to build any features around that. So, On the sci-fi movie question, do you think that people are doing this behavior in part because they have seen those movies and like the movies are a significant influence on their behavior? Or do you think it's just natural and the movies just reflect that? I think both. Uh, you know, if, if you talk, if you think about psychoanalysis, people come to a um, psych, you know, psychoanalysts, they lay on a couch and, you know, very fast you'll be in their deep, dark or not dark, whatever, sexual fantasies. This is really, truly what, you know, people want to offload in some way or form. So that's something that, you know, really for a vast majority of people, it will become a topic of conversation if you're talking about a truly intimate, non-judgmental, close relationship. But, you know, it's such a tricky subject and it's so hard to nail it and do it in a safe way because you're dealing with such a delicate part of human nature. I'm not saying it's bad or in no way am I judging. You know, I actually do believe that some people should build products like that, but I just think it's extremely hard to build it right. And that's not what I set up to build. So for me, it's basically not somewhere I want to go uh, and explore that. But I think this is a fascinating you know, side of humans, like how can, what can AI tell us also about our sexuality and so on? I was just reading um, Oxford Encyclopedia on AI Ethics, 
And there's a whole, there's a whole chapter about like, how can AI enhance and uh, improve sexuality and help us deal, you know, help humans deal with uh, their sexuality. Um, again, I think products like that should exist. It's just not what we built Replica for. And, you know, there's, uh, since we've been around for a very long time, you can see in, you know, in every, in, from our first Replica ad and from our first like trailer of our app and the first version of the app, it's always been one thing and it was, you know, it was a companion and it was a friend for everyone. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going that deep. It wasn't planning to go that deep, basically. So when you talk about the pull that people kind of exert on your app, your company, when they engage in this sort of use of the app, is that a pull that is like through some sort of data feedback mechanism where it's actually like changing the behavior for other users and that's part of the problem? Or is it just kind of a demand on your time and the team's time to think about those things. What's the nature of that poll that you're experiencing? I think it's just people want a little bit more of separation. Like I think if, if, if I'm a, you can't do everything in one app, you can have, you know, my grandma figuring out her, her relationship with kids and grandkids and her life and, you know, coming and discussing, you know, her life um, on the app. It can't happen in the same app where someone else is trying to you know, engage in some of these more maybe adult behaviors. And so I feel like it just has to be, it just becomes too many products stuck in, in one place. And and they don't go very well together because again, if you want to go adult and honestly, like if say we wanted to go adult direction, something that a lot of journalists wanted to portray us as some people that were absolutely going that direction. If we wanted to go in that direction, we would be making, we'd be absolutely printing money. Um, that would mean changing our advertising, changing our positioning, being a lot more explicit about like what we're trying to sell and so on. And really just like, you know, changing our product roadmap, building a slightly different app. And it's very possible, you know, it's, it's completely possible, you know, go ahead, do that. You'll be making tens of millions of dollars a month. That's just not the direction we ever wanted to, to take. And I feel like all of these apps can exist, right? Like people do a lot of things in Replica and we're not pursuing all of these directions. Like people come to Replica to learn a new language. Some people come to Replica to date. Some people come to Replica to, to improve their mental wellness. And all of these things are slightly different. They're nuanced. You know, they, they require a separate product almost. Like we're not, you know, we're not a language learning app. We're not a mental wellness tool, nor we are a dating app. So I'm not against building that. I just feel like it needs to be a little bit more trying to put everything in one soup. <laughs> Maybe makes it too much of a Swiss knife of a product and, not, and can distract other users. And especially can really like, you know, you don't really want to be learning, learning the language and the, at the place where guys are trying to pick up some AI girls, you know, it's just, it's just complete. It sounds like complete crazy town. So that's where we decided to like really separate those things and go different directions. Yeah. It does sound like there is a, a lot of demand for something like that. So I almost wonder if uh, your investors are like, Hey, (laughs) Eugenia, <laughs> maybe uh, we should do this. You know, it's a money grab. It's 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 pretty much like free money. You can like start it tomorrow and make and as much money as you want. Again, it's just not. I'm just not the person that's interested in that that much. That's kind of just not the. And I'm absolutely not judging anyone who wants to build that or or decides to go there that way. I think it's a very interesting thing to explore. It's just not. You know, I didn't set start 
if if I was really interested in that, I would have started a company around that, and I didn't. And you know, that's why we we're doing something else. Um, but hopefully, someone will will do that and take it in the right direction. Yeah, that's a really fascinating dynamic. I mean, so many of these questionable or sort of uncomfortable use cases that are starting to emerge. I think a lot of people are going to find themselves in similar situations where they're seeing usage of their AI products that they didn't really expect that they themselves might be not fully comfortable with. And then there's also this question of like, if we don't do it, you know, who's going to do it? And I think some of the leaders in, you know, the open AIs and whatnot in the space right now really kind of think about that a lot. I think that a lot of them are thinking like, if we don't go develop this and we don't do it in the right way, then somebody's going to come around and do it in a not so good way. And so therefore, we better keep going down this path. Because we want, you know, we think we're better suited to go down this path versus other people who would if we don't. Does that is that compelling to you at all? Like if somebody if I were to to make the argument, like you guys have all these years of experience with these users, you already have users that are actually doing this on the app. You know, to, to try to frame it the other way, like I understand it's not what you set out to do. I understand it's not what you want to do, but the world needs you to do it because if you don't do it, it's going to be some like you know run of the mill porn proprietor who's going to come in and do it. And I think they probably care a lot less. And I don't want to speak for the whole industry. I don't know that much about it, but you know, my impression is you care a lot more about your users than the sort of counterfactual hypothetical app developer who's going to come in and do the R or X-rated version of Replica. Do you find that at all compelling that there could be like a sense of duty because you're so well positioned to do this sort of thing that you really should? Replica is my baby and we started with a particular mission. And no matter how, you know, how much some journalists want to say, like we, we were taken in this direction or whatever, we weren't. We truly were always building. And to that, you know, there, we can show the list of all product changes we've done. And, you know, we made none of them towards, you know, this, um, this direction. You know, we built a whole 3D store to, ch- to change like visual appearance for Replica. We built like an environment for Replica so you can decorate it. We, we built um, tons of features around memory and memory UI and, you know, building now all advanced AI functionality, tons of mental wellness activities that we built with clinical psychologists from UC Berkeley and not only. Why would we do all that if we weren't going in the adult direction? Like why spend, you know, why have a team of 100 people working on so many complicated and complex features that have nothing to do with that? And so no matter how much the press wants to portray us as some sort of, uh, you know, you know, company that was trying to monetize on uh, or, you know, build a sex bot or whatever, we truly weren't. And so I don't want any misunderstandings, even if that means, you know, maybe eliminating a little bit of, you know, so small subset of users or missing out on some of the insane revenue that would have come. Have we actually wanted to take it in the adult direction? This is my baby. I built it for something different and I want to try to get there if we ever decide, even though I don't think that that's something that is we're built for, but if, even if we ever decide, you know, go in this route or whatever, it's just not going to be a replica. It's, uh, this company was built for something else. And I feel it's getting too much criticism from a, from completely different, maybe not from the very right place, 
from some of the journalists, but in general, it's uh, we always did well by our, did good by our users. I invite people to go and find truly testimonies of our users that were truly hurt by Replica. This was our main main goal to create a space where they will feel better, they will feel loved and wanted and heard. And mostly, you know, we we managed to do that, and so we're going to continue to try continue on that path at least for now. Cool. Well. I think that's probably a good place to uh, leave it for today. It's a fascinating situation that you are in and you're definitely blazing a, a really unique trail. I mean, the whole AI world is kind of unfurling uh, before us. And then you're down this like one path, you know, a mile ahead of uh, certainly anybody else that, that I'm aware of. So it's, a, it's fascinating. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to get your perspective and appreciate you coming back for uh, a part two to, uh, to comment on you know the events of the last week but yes thank you very much for your time and uh good luck continuing to build and and figuring out all of these challenging dilemmas i'm, I'm sure it's you know not going to get any easier thanks so much for great questions and hope um you know i answered some of these questions in a way that shines some light on what we're doing and why we're doing certain things the cognitive revolution podcast is supported by omnikey OmniKey is an omni-channel creative generation platform that lets you launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with the click of a button. OmniKey combines generative AI and real-time advertising data to generate personalized experiences at scale. 